Hey everyone, welcome back to Adhering Apologetics. It's always brought to you by you with your support on Patreon.com. Today I'm joined by Dr. Kirk McGregor. I don't think he has any relation to the UFC champion or fighter, Conor McGregor, um, but he's yeah, an associate yeah, professor. <laughs> he's an associate professor of philosophy at McPherson College, and we're going to be talking about his work in the topic of Molinism. So, Kirk, thank you so much for joining me. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thank you. Yeah, I'm so excited. We're just going to kind of give like a brief like rundown on Molinism, almost like Molinism for dummies, you could say. We're going to just cover like the basics of it, what Molinists believe, and then kind of some objections to it. Um, so just to start off, could you talk a little bit about like who you are and what you do, Kirk? Well, as you pointed out, I am Associate Professor of Philosophy and Religion at McPherson College. McPherson is right smack in the middle of Kansas. So we're going through a very cold streak right now. Hopefully we will get out of the negative temperatures today and back into the positive temperatures. Uh, I am also department chair, which means that I help oversee how philosophy and religion is taught at the college. I also frequently speak at professional meetings like the Evangelical Theological Society, the Evangelical Philosophical Society, and the American Academy of Religion. I've published six books, um, two of which are extremely important to this conversation. In 2015, I published the book Luis de Molina, The Life and Theology of the Founder of Middle Knowledge, and that's with Sondervan. And then in 2007, I published A Molinist Anabaptist Systematic Theology with University Press of America. So that gives you a sense of my work. Um, one of my major research areas is Molinism. I've published at least um, 10 articles on the subject in professional journals like Philosophia Christi and International Journal for the Philosophy of Religion. Hmm. So what got you interested first in studying um, the doctrine and theology of Molinism? Well, I grew up in an Anabaptist background. I belong to the Church of the Brethren, which is an Anabaptist denomination. And the Anabaptist movement really doesn't have much of an emphasis on um, the debate between um, sovereign individual predestination and human freedom as is found in Calvinist circles and Arminian circles and even in open theist circles. And so I always wondered how various scriptural puzzle pieces fit together. So I saw as early as high school that there were a certain number of texts which seemed to clearly teach God's sovereign predestination of individuals. There's another set of texts which seem to equally clearly teach that humans have genuine free will, what philosophers would call libertarian free will. That is the ability to choose between the alternatives. There's another group of texts which teach very clearly God's universal salvific will, that God desires all persons to be saved and gives all persons sufficient grace for salvation. And I wondered how these all fit together. It seemed to me that these three pieces were like 
three puzzle pieces, but that I didn't have the puzzle. It was very clear to me that the three pieces did not themselves interlock. And when I look at other traditions like Calvinism or Arminianism or open theism, it seems like those traditions attempt to use exegetical arguments to try to make those pieces themselves interlock. And I don't think they do. I think that if you try to make them interlock, then you run the risk of uh, um, explaining away the face value meaning of one or more of those three sets of texts in order to suit the puzzle piece or puzzle pieces that you most prefer. And that is inconsistent with biblical inerrancy. And I just don't believe the Holy Spirit can make mistakes like that. So I was looking for some logical way to put these three puzzle pieces together while being able to affirm each one of them at face value. And as I entered college and studied philosophy and religion and began to take language courses, I saw that when I looked up these same texts in Hebrew and Greek, they meant exactly the same thing as they seem to mean in English. There wasn't some hidden layer that I was missing. So that made me even more convinced that if a text seems to read some way in English, and then you say, well, but that seems philosophically or theologically problematic, I'm going to check it in the original language to see if I'm missing something, and then I'm not missing something. And then you hold to a system that denies the face value meaning of that text or another set of texts, then that was simply unacceptable to me. So in the year 2000, I recall um, I was studying for my master's degree at Biola University, and I first heard um, Bill Craig speak on the topic of Molinism. Um, and I immediately saw that Molinism had the resources to put together those three puzzle pieces. What was interesting is that Bill Craig doesn't hold to the same understanding of sovereign individual predestination that I do. Um, Craig takes a more corporate view of passages like Romans 9. But still, I was able to see that Molinism offered the type of system whereby you could put those three together. In other words, it gave you the overall puzzle, and I could see where those three pieces fit. And I thought, this makes sense, that if we're called to love God with all our mind, that's one of the um, great commandments that Jesus gave us, then it's imperative upon us to use logical reflection to try to discern the larger puzzle into which these scriptural pieces fit. And um, I, within a couple of months, um, got my hands through some libraries on um, primary texts by Molina. Um, by that, I mean in, in the Latin, not in English translation. And so um, all seven volumes of Molina's Concordia, which the only part of that that's translated into English is book four, um, but there's so much in those other books that's extremely important. Um, Molina's equally long De Justitia et Iure, um, his treatise on justice and law, Molina is just as important a figure when dealing with topics of social justice and legality as he is with topics in middle knowledge and divine omniscience. 
It's really that communities who interpret Molina in one circle really don't pay much attention to what he does in the other circle. And I try to do justice to both of those circles. So my appreciation for Molina has really grown over the years. Um, always been someone that I have continuously read. Um, I earned my PhD at the University of Iowa in 2005, and that's when I started my professorial career. And um, it wasn't until about 2013 that I had really gotten through all of um, Molina's primary works in Latin. And it was then that I thought, I think there should be a book written about um, Molina's complete life and theology. And so I pitched the idea to Zondervan, they went for it, and the rest is history. Hmm. That's awesome. Yeah. So one thing that'd be helpful to go into at this point is talking about like, what is Molinism? What are some of like the key um, theological ideas behind it? And how does it fit things like the sovereignty of God and free will and predestination, all these things together? Yeah. Well, Molinism, interestingly, is a doctrine that it depends on how strong of a Molinist you want to be. But if you're kind of a weak Molinist, or as my colleague and friend Tim Stratton likes to call it, a mere Molinist, then even a Calvinist could be a mere Molinist. So Molinism minimally teaches that when we are considering the sovereignty of God, that God doesn't learn anything over the course of time, that there's not a moment of time of which God knows a little bit less and then learns a little bit more and then learns a little bit more, but that we can, for the sake of our own explanation, talk about the various logical moments in God's omniscience. Now, let me explain what a logical moment is. Imagine that I was traveling down to Texas, as I do most every Christmas. My wife's family lives in Austin in that vicinity. And so the speed limit on Kansas interstates is 75. And I very much like going 75. And the speed limit when I cross over into Oklahoma is 70. And I don't want to slow down. And so what happens when I hit the Oklahoma state line? Well, three things simultaneously are going on. One, I'm in Oklahoma. Two, I'm subject to Oklahoma speed laws. And three, I'm speeding. Now notice there's not a moment in time where just one of those is true or two of those is true. All three of those are chronologically true at the same time. And even if the fourth dimension of the universe collapsed and there were no such thing as time, Still, there would not even be a timeless moment at which all three of those were not simultaneously true. Yet, we need to ask, logically speaking, what step goes to explain the other steps? So we think, what would come logically first? Well, what makes sense that I'm in Oklahoma and by virtue of that, I'm subject to their speed laws? or that I'm subject to their speed laws, and in virtue of that, I'm in Oklahoma. Well, it seems like logically, I would need to be in Oklahoma prior to being subject to Oklahoma speed laws. In other words, my being in Oklahoma is the reason or the explanation 
to why I'm subject to Oklahoma speed laws. And so we can say in logical order, logical moment one, I'm in Oklahoma, logical moment two, I'm subject to Oklahoma speed laws. Now let's do the same thing with my speeding. My speeding, um, does it make sense that my speeding um, is explained by my being subject to Oklahoma speed laws or vice versa? Well, it seems like in the logical sequence, I would need to be subject to Oklahoma speed laws in order to be speeding. So we've got this three-fold logical structure. Moment one, I'm in Oklahoma. Moment two, I'm subject to Oklahoma speed laws. Moment three, I'm speeding. Now, we can do exactly the same thing with God's omniscience. We can say moment one is God's natural knowledge. This is knowledge that God has by God's very nature. God could not lack this knowledge and still be God. This is God's knowledge of all logically necessary truths, such as the laws of logic and the truths of mathematics, and also his knowledge of all possibilities, because possibilities are just a species of necessary truths. So God knows everything that could be, including everything that any possible creature could do in any conceivable set of circumstances. Next comes moment two. Moment two is God's knowledge of hypothetical conditionals, what we would call would statements. So in moment two, God knows what would happen under such and such circumstances. Understand that in moment one, in our understanding, God knows what could happen in all, all um, conceivable circumstances. In moment two, God knows what would happen in all conceivable circumstances. And that includes God's knowledge of what any possible creature would do in those circumstances. Now, God, on the basis of this knowledge, decides out of all, all of the possible creatures and circumstances and everything else to put together, to assemble um, the world that God chooses to create. Now, God could choose not to create any world at all, or God could choose to create a radically different world than this one. But God, for reasons known only to God, based sheerly on God's sovereignty, God decides to construct a world on the basis of this knowledge that God has. And this knowledge um, gives God the means to ensure that all things ultimately wind up according to God's providence without having to take away human free will or find God's self threatened by human free will, but rather that God can sovereignly and providentially fine-tune the world down to the very last detail while working in and through human free decisions. And so finally comes God's free knowledge and that's the knowledge that God has as a result of God's free choice of which world to create. So God, having chosen to create one particular world, um, knows now what is going to happen, what was going to happen, what will be the case. When most people think about this, they think about largely will be the case. So if you had to summarize it, in natural knowledge, God knows what could be. In middle knowledge, God knows what would be. On the basis of that, God makes a divine creative decision 
And of course, he could choose some other world than this. He could choose no world at all, but he sovereignly chooses this world. And then on the basis of that choice and God's free knowledge, God knows everything that's going to happen in this world. Mm, right. And thank you for kind of just walking through that here. Um, the next question I have for you is why should someone hold to, why do you think someone should hold to like a Molinist view? Like we have these different options on the table. We could be like a Calvinist or an Arminianist or an open theist. Like what are some of the like distinctive advantages you think of Molinism that make it seem like, like the best thing that might be available for the Christian? Well, I think there are several features First, is that it allows you to reconcile those three sets of biblical texts that I mentioned before. So, if human beings have libertarian freedom, which scripture seems to indicate in passages like Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 11 to 20, then we can hold that God, being omniscient and omnipotent, is at least able to create beings with libertarian freedom. That's certainly not logically impossible. And so God, it seems like, would need to know in God's natural knowledge what any possible libertarian free creature could do in any set of circumstances. And in God's middle knowledge, God would have to know what any libertarian free creature would do in any set of circumstances. Now, one could even be a Calvinist and go that far and simply say, well, I just believe that God didn't choose to create libertarian free creatures. Granted, he could have if he wanted to, but he chose not to. He chose to create deterministic creatures instead. Um, but if you believe that scripture teaches that God created libertarian free creatures and you have other reasons for believing in libertarian free will, then that's going to seem uh, major strength to you. Also, with regard to God's sovereign election of individuals, Molinism makes perfect sense of Romans 9. When Romans 9 talks about the idea of God choosing for each person and that ultimately things all go back to God's choice, take me as an example. God, in God's middle knowledge, knows that out of the plethora of possible worlds that God could create, that there are some worlds in which I exist and God offers me God's saving grace and I freely choose to accept it. And there are other worlds in which I exist and I receive God's saving grace and I freely choose to reject it. And there are other worlds in which I don't exist at all. Now, which of those is God's going to choose? It's completely up to God which of those is going to be the actual world, if any. And so God, by choosing to create a world in which I freely choose to embrace God's saving grace and find salvation, instead of a world in which I freely choose to reject God's saving grace and be lost, God thereby predestines me or elects me to salvation. And had God chosen the other way, then God would have reprobated me or ultimately consigned me to condemnation. And of course, if God chose a world where I don't exist, then I'm not even in the equation. So Molinism can explain really for everyone, everyone is in exactly that same boat. 
And yet it still preserves fairness because even in the world, even in the number of worlds in which I would exist, and yet I would freely reject God's saving grace, I'm still culpable because I freely do it. There's nothing in those worlds that make me reject God's grace. It's not that I had less opportunity in those worlds or that the circumstances were any worse in those worlds. It's rather that I would just freely choose to reject his grace in those worlds. And God knew that as a point of fact. So if I ever tried to boast to God and say, God, look how great I am. You know, I freely cho chose to accept your saving grace. And that's why I'm saved. God would say to me, no, Kirk, um, fact of the matter is I could have just as easily chosen a world in which you had just as good of an earthly life, if not a far better one. And you freely chose to reject my saving grace and were lost. So ultimately, your salvation traces back exclusively to me. Also, God's universal salvific will. This makes sense given the fact that um, God wants on Molinism to save all people, but that God knows that there is no world of free creatures where you would have such a thing as universal salvation. Now that might seem odd. You might say, well, why couldn't there be? Well, the reason is because some people, sadly enough, will only be saved in a world where other people are lost. And some people um, need the bad examples of others. For example, you might have, say, a son who... His dad is, is lost. His dad rejects the grace of God. His, his dad makes an absolute mess out of his life. And the son looks at his father and says, gosh, I don't want to go down that same road. Um, I am going to do exactly the opposite of what my dad did, and I'm going to turn to Jesus. And suppose that God middle knows that only in a world where the father is lost, that the son would be saved. And then maybe several other people would be saved as a result of that. Now, of course, the son couldn't even exist without the father. So you can't just create a world with the son and not have the father in it. And examples like that could be multiplied. Now, what would an all-loving God who really desires the salvation of all want? Well, what God would want a world containing what Craig calls and what I call an optimal balance between saved and lost. Now, I'm not altogether sure that you can define this optimal balance mathematically. I think Craig, Craig tries to do that by saying, featuring no more of the lost than is necessary to achieve the optimal number of the saved. I'm not mm -hmm. quite sure one can do that simply because it's not at all clear to me which of, say, two worlds is better. One which you have like a very small number of saved people, but all of them are really mature in their faith. All of them are really on fire for Jesus. Um, and, um, and you've got a high level of commitment among those people. Or if you have a whole lot number of saved people, a lot, a whole lot more saved people, but they're the kind of people who, you know, Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 3, who are barely saved, but as though escaping through the flames, you know, mm -hmm. is it really better for God to have all of these people who are sort of barely committed to Jesus and wind up getting saved? And even though that would um, 
even though um, that would reduce the number of the lost. So I think with optimal balance, I would have to leave that up to God as to what God considers an optimal balance. I don't know in that case what would be an optimal balance, but I do believe there's a right answer to that question and that God knows it and that God wants a world with an optimal balance um, of saved and lost. And therefore, God knows that a number of worlds, really an infinite set of worlds, would meet that criterion. So there are an equally good set of worlds from which an all-good God can choose. And in that set of worlds, I'm faced with the example that some of those worlds I would freely believe, other of those worlds I would freely refuse to believe, other of those worlds I would not exist. And that goes for every single person. So by saying that, yes, God does God's very best in only selecting from those possible worlds which achieve an optimal balance, and yet it is still the case that God is ultimately the one for each individual who makes the final determination of salvation, condemnation, or non-existence, that you can have all three of those puzzle pieces simultaneously being true. Hmm. Yeah, and I don't great. say that on any other theory. You can't say that on Calvinism because you don't have libertarian freedom and you don't have God's universal salvific will. Um, you can't say that on Arminianism because you don't have sovereign individual predestination. And you can't say that on open theism because you don't have sovereign individual predestination. Um, and you also have other theological objections such as God taking chances, God risking things, and really not an all-provident and all-sovereign God. Mm. Right, and thank you for kind of walking us through that. We will go um, to a little bit of Q&A in about 20 minutes. If you have questions or super chats, be sure to send those in. Um, but I do have four objections-ish um, for you here to talk about with Molinism. We'll see how far we can get. We don't have to get through it all. But one of the most common objections that uh, to Molinism is this idea of the grounding objection. So a simple like little blurb I found that kind of talks about it is it's just the, the argument claims that there are no metaphysical grounds for the truthfulness of counterfactuals of creaturely freedom. So I think it kind of gets down to like, if God is all knowing, um, but we also possess this libertarian freedom where we had the capacity to make a decision, choose otherwise, how could God know what we could are going to choose to do with libertarian freedom? Um, so how would you answer that kind of objection, Kirk? Well, I would first of all say that there are, it's kind of like a highway with a whole lot of exits. Um, mm -hmm. And it really depends on your own theological proclivity as to which exit you want to take. I happen to think mm -hmm. all of the exits are fine. Um, but one thing that people don't realize about the grounding objection is that this is not a biblical objection. Um, and for Calvinists who oftentimes claim, you know, we're really sticking to the Bible here and we're not going to be, you know, misled by philosophy. This is a sheerly philosophical objection and a highly controversial one at that. And the same is true for open theists who make exactly the same objection. They claim, oh, we're just sticking with the Bible and that's why we believe that God changes his mind. But no, that, that's a sheerly philosophical objection. Um, there's no basis for that objection in scripture. In scripture, you don't have to know how God can know something as long as you've got good evidence that God knows it. So is there evidence in scripture that God possesses counterfactual knowledge? Yes, mm -hmm. it's all over the place in scripture. So imagine um, David, when David is 
attempting to figure out whether Saul is going to try to capture him at Kyla. And if Saul comes to Kyla, will or will not the citizens of Kyla hand him over to Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 23? Well, David inquires of God, you know, if, if I stay here, um, is Saul going to come and try to get me? And God says, yeah, he will if you stay. And then he says, well, if, if he comes, then would the people of Kyla freely hand me over to Saul? And God says they would, as a result of which David gets the heck out of town. And Saul, when he hears that David has absconded, you know, gives up the expedition. Or Jesus, when he says concerning the cities in which he did most of his miracles and which did not repent by and large, he says in Matthew 11, chapter Matthew chapter 11, um, starting in verse 20, woe to you, Kordatz, and woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be better for them than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to, to the heights? No, you will be brought down to the depths, for if the miracles performed in you had been performed in Sodom, then Sodom would still be around to this day. Nevertheless, it will be better for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 2.8, where Paul says, none of the rulers of this age, like um, the Sanhedrin or Pilate, understood this kind of who exactly Jesus was. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And scripture is replete with statements like that. Molina catalogs about 30 of them in the Concordia. So, one could get off right there and say one doesn't need to know how God knows something in order to know that God knows it. To give an example, um, over here in my living room, I have a direct TV um, um, box. I have no idea how that box works. I don't know anything about electrical engineering. Only thing I know about is philosophy and religion. That's it. And so I have no idea how that thing works or how it gets me like 500 channels or whatever it is. But does that give me any evidence that it doesn't give me those channels? Of course not. Now, let's even go further. So that's one exit lane. Second possible exit lane is um, the grounding objection assumes a particular um, theory of truth known as truth maker theory. And if truth maker theory is false, then the grounding objection is over and done with. Now, I don't particularly find truth maker theory attractive. I'm reminded here of one thing that Alvin Plantinga said. Alvin Plantinga said, it seems to me much clearer that there are counterfactuals of creaturely freedom than any theory which claims that they need to be grounded in some particular way. So one could just get off right there and say, well, I reject truth maker theory. Well, suppose that you keep on going down the highway and say, all right, now I'm a truth maker theorist. Most truth maker theorists are not truth maker maximalists. A truth maker maximalist holds that for every single truth to be true, it requires metaphysical grounding. It requires a truth maker. But most truth maker theorists hold that there are exemptions. There are truths that can be true without a truth maker. And foremost among those are counterfactual truths mm. and also various logical truths and mathematical truths. So you could just say, well, in general, I'm a truth maker theory, but I get off here and that I'm not a truth maker maximalist. 
But now let's suppose you keep going down the highway anyway, and you say, I'm a truth maker maximalist. Then why couldn't you say, well, what is the metaphysical grounding of counterfactuals of creaturely freedom is the fact revealed by what is called the disquotation principle. So the disquotation principle means if you look at a particular statement, like, quote, if I were rich, then I would buy a yellow Lamborghini. What makes that true is the fact that comes about if you just remove the quotation marks. It's the fact that if I were rich, then I would buy a yellow Lamborghini. Now, if you still don't think that that works, if you don't think that's sufficient metaphysical grounding, then you can go one step farther and say, well, why couldn't it be the case, as John Lang argued in his doctoral dissertation, that because God is all powerful, God knows the idea of every possible creature that God could create. That's part of God's natural knowledge. And I would put it like this to be sort of more philosophical. God knows the individual creaturely essence of every being that God could create. Now, some of those creaturely essences have libertarian free will. So let's call those creaturely libertarian essences or CLEs. God in his natural knowledge would know all CLEs um, that there could be. And each of those CLEs would possess or own certain counterfactuals of creaturely freedom. Thereby, God, just by knowing the contents of God's own mind, um, immediate knowledge of God's self, would perceive counterfactuals of creaturely freedom and thereby know them. Or if you say, well, I don't believe that either because then um, these counterfactuals of creaturely freedom couldn't be owned or possessed by these essences. I don't see how an essence could own or possess something. Then my final way you can get off is that you hold that God knows counterfactuals of creaturely freedom by way of divine intuition. I'm currently doing research on this, the idea of intuition. And according to many psychologists and philosophers, intuition is the general cognitive faculty to handle counterfactual statements. In other words, intuition is the cognitive faculty which is able to make decisions in evidentially underdeterminative cases. And so we use our intuition all the time in evidentially underdeterminative cases. And it quite often gives us knowledge, at least more often than not. So if I were to offer my wife a glass of Diet Dr. Pepper and a glass of Pepsi, I know with certainty which one of those that she would choose just as certainly as I know anything. But of course, my knowing it in advance does nothing if I choose to actualize that situation to magically force her to choose the Diet Dr. Pepper and to bring the glass up to her mouth and drink it. It's simply that I, by way of my own finite intuition, know that counterfactual. And if I, through my finite knowledge of other people's essences, can correctly determine a limited amount of counterfactuals about them, then just reason by analogy, why can't God, with his infinite intelligence and absolute knowledge of all creaturely libertarian essences, which actually directly flow and necessarily flow out of God's imagination and have since eternity past, why couldn't God therefore intuit every 
um, counterfactual of creaturely freedom pertaining to those creatures. And in that way, you could say counterfactuals of creaturely freedom are God's beliefs about these creaturely libertarian essences. So as I say, I don't think this grounding objection is any good. I think there are multiple ways to evade it. Mm. Right. Another objection that I want to bring up here for a second is the idea of how can we have still this libertarian freedom if God foreknows like everything that's going to occur? I'll see, hear a lot of people say, well, if God has foreknowledge of me being a Christian or me not being a Christian, then it seems like it's already been determined that I'll be a Christian or not a Christian. So then it's not really my free choice to either choose or reject Christ because it, it, it's already been determined. Um so I, I'm wondering how, like, how would you respond to this kind of um, objection? I know you talked about it a little bit, but could you go in a little more detail about how you kind of respond to this? Yeah. Well, my simple retort is knowledge is not causally determinative, no matter who has it. So if you think about what knowledge is, knowledge is something like an abstract object. Abstract objects can't cause anything. It doesn't matter where the abstract object is or who happens to hold the abstract object or what have you. So God's knowing what I'm going to freely choose in certain situations doesn't do anything more to make me do what I do in those situations than my knowledge of what my wife would freely choose if I were to offer her that glass of diet Pepsi and that glass or that glass of diet Dr. Pepper and that glass of Pepsi. Let's suppose that later today I decide to do it. I decide to say, Laura, which of these two do you want? Do you want diet Dr. Pepper? Or do you want diet Pepsi? You know, the next time she, she says that she's thirsty, you know, does my knowledge of what she's going to do. And I know that as certainly as I know anything, does my knowledge of what she's going to do have any causal power whatsoever in making her do what she does or determining her to do what she does? No, she does it just as freely as if I didn't have any limited middle knowledge of her whatsoever. And so you can say exactly the same thing with God's middle knowledge, that God's middle knowledge of what we would freely choose simply has no causal power on us. Molina makes this quite clear in the Concordia. He says, God's middle knowledge exerts no power on creaturely choices. It's exactly the same as if God completely lacked middle knowledge. They would be just as free either way, whether or not God has middle knowledge. They act completely freely. But a God with middle knowledge is obviously far superior to a God without middle knowledge. And I would say that certainly. Um, if someone had been married to my wife for 12 years and they weren't yet able to ascertain certain facts about her, they would be a worse husband to her than I am. <laughs> but it doesn't matter um, concerning the knowledge part, whether God holds the knowledge, whether I hold the knowledge, um, any agent's knowledge of what some other agent is going to do in the future or what some other agent would do in hypothetical circumstances exerts no power whatsoever over what they freely choose to do. They do it just as freely as if you had no knowledge at all or if God had no such knowledge at all.
Mm. That's great. Thank you. Um, one last question I have for you, and then we'll go to just a little bit of Q&A, is what's so great about free will? Um, we talk about, you talked about um, how God can preserve our libertarian freedom, and he has. He could have made us like robots. But like, what's so valuable about free will in the first place um, that makes it seem like an important thing to kind of account for when we're looking at like our theology? Well, first of all, I would say it's scriptural um, that passages like Deuteronomy 30 and um, passages like um, 1 Corinthians 11 and others plainly teach that we have free will. Um, secondly, I would kind of say tongue-in-cheek to anyone who sincerely means what's so great about free will, I would be say, okay, be the first one to give yours up. Then just give yours up then. Prove to me that it's not that important. I don't know of anyone who would sincerely take up that challenge. Um, third, I would say that without free will, rationality is impossible. Without free will, you couldn't rationally come to believe in something. Because when you rationally come to believe in something, you freely deliberate, you freely weigh the alternatives, you freely see if something is logical. But if we don't have free will, then none of those things actually go on. We might have the illusion that all of those things are going on, but yet none of those things are actually going on. It's just that we're determined to make all of the mental moves that we might make. And so that is a defeater for anything that we know. We couldn't know anything. We would have no grounds whatsoever to believe that God exists, that Jesus resurrected from the dead. Um, we would have no good grounds to believe that there is an external world, that the past is real. You know, you just keep going with this bizarre scenario. So without free will, rationality becomes impossible. Rationality assumes that we have libertarian free will. So without libertarian free will, there is a defeater for each and every one of the beliefs that we hold. So determinism simply cannot be rationally affirmed. It's rationally self-defeating. Third thing I would say is that free will is necessary for love. Um, if God wants love relationships with creatures, love implies that the person makes a voluntary choice to say yes to another, to embrace the other in love and allegiance. And if you lack free will, then there's no way that you can do that. And so um, it really couldn't be the case that we could love God, that um, God would have any type of love relationship, any type of reciprocal love relationship with us. If we lacked free will, then um, our love for God is, is trivialized. It doesn't even exist. Um, it's really just that God loves us, not that we in any sense love God. It's kind of like God loving God's pets, and we would be sort of relegated to God's human pets. And that leads me to my final point. If we lack free will, we're dehumanized. What really is the centerpiece of making us human but for genuine free will? Certainly, it's a properly basic belief to all of us that we have free will. It's something that arises appropriately from our cognitive faculties and our experience, and there's no reason, therefore, to distrust it. And if, again, if we really don't have this free will, then what's really the point of God's endowing us with a soul in the first place? One difference between us and the animals is that we being ensouled 
do have, by virtue of being in soul, libertarian freedom, and by virtue of being created in the image of God. God has libertarian freedom. God gets to choose, um, ultimately, who is saved and who is lost and which world to create. And so if we're truly in the image of God, then we need to have libertarian freedom as well. So why would God give us a soul and thus give us the opportunity to have free will and make us different from the animals by that account? But on the other hand, um, not allow us to have libertarian free will or not give it to us. It seems like that in that case, God could have just created all of us bodily in heaven or you know, in the new creation, and we wouldn't even need this period of being ensouled where we make a voluntary decision for or against God. So I really think you live in a bizarro world if you deny free will. Mm. Yeah, thank you for going through that here. Um, we will go to a little bit of live questions now, so we'll hit a couple questions or super chats on our way out. Um, we have a question from the programmer which says, do you think um, the evidential problem of evil poses a problem for Molinism? So maybe talking about how maybe God foreknows that he'll allow maybe these um, intense moments of suffering, uh, maybe that are gratuitous or things like that. So what do you think about um, this question, Kirk? I actually think that the evidential problem of evil is only solved on Molinism. So I wrote an article for the journal Philosophia Christi on this topic entitled The, um, the Existence and Irrelevance of Gratuitous Evil, in which I take a Molinist approach and I say, let's, let's grant that there really is gratuitous evil out there in the world. I personally think it's the wrong approach with a skeptic to God to try to persuade them that really all the evil in the world that seems pointless really all has some mysterious point that they can't see. It's going to be quite hard for them to swallow. It's logically possible, but I don't think they're gonna buy it. So I think why not just say that given God's middle knowledge, um, God would know in terms of world optimality, um, what amount of natural natural and moral evil is ultimately um, going to factor in to a world that has um, this optimal balance of salvation versus damnation. And I would also say that there are natural evils and moral evils that may be logically impossible for God to stop. So Remember, God's omnipotence doesn't mean that God can just do anything. It means that God can do anything that's logically possible to do. And so if you think about the conditions under which free will arises, what would those conditions look like? Well, if we have genuine free will, then it seems like that means we have the ability to do anything on the moral spectrum from absolute good to absolute evil and anywhere in between. And so if God kind of stepped in whenever we were going to make a morally bad decision and um, cut us off, then I really don't think we would have libertarian free will. So if like a bank robber and murderer really has libertarian free will, it can't just be that they um, decide to rob the bank and they plan to rob the bank and they go in and they pull out the gun, but every time they try to fire the gun, you know, the bullets come out as rubber and they bounce off of the other people. In that case, the robber isn't really free to shoot those other people. So I think the very structure of libertarian freedom requires logically that 
you not only have the ability to want to do something, but you actually have the ability to achieve it, whether good or bad. And so if that's true, then one, all one has to do is to appeal to um, the, um, the free will defense in order to explain, um, in order to explain moral evil. Um, concerning natural evil, one could say that perfection may well be an incommunicable attribute of God. So what exactly is perfection? I would say perfection is completeness and limitless fulfillment in each and every respect. And it seems to me that only God could possess completeness and unlimited fulfillment in each and every respect. In order for something to have that property, it would seem to have to be uncreated because if it's created by something else, it's dependent on that other thing. It's not complete in and of itself. It doesn't have a satiety. It is not perfect. Um, and for anything else to be a creature, then it would not be able to have this attribute of perfection. So just like God couldn't transfer over God's omnipotence to some other being, so I don't think God can transfer over God's attribute of perfection to, say, the universe. And in that case, unless God constantly steps in and prevents the universe from featuring all of its malfunctions like hurricanes and tornadoes and you know weather storms that leave us at you know negative degrees outside unless if god is going to step in and providentially you know short circuit all of that then god would be so immediately present to all of us right here that we would not have the freedom to say yes or no to god we would be powerless but to believe and so because god doesn't want to take away free will God has to be at sort of an epistemic distance from the universe at arm's length. And that means that all of these um, natural imperfections of the universe are going to manifest themselves. Now, of course, at the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth, where God, so to speak, does move into the universe, then the people who um, are in that world, who are the saved, they've already freely chosen to trust their lives to God and ultimately commit themselves to God. And so in that sense, in that state, they don't have the freedom to reject anymore because God's already given them the opportunity in the past. And that would be perfectly acceptable. And in the new heavens and the new earth, because God sort of moves into the universe and God's definitive presence is right here among us, then all of the natural imperfections of the universe no longer manifest themselves. So if that scenario is plausible, and I think it's true, then you really don't have an evidential problem of evil on Molinism. Yeah, that's great. Um, we have a couple more questions here. Um, one from Curity, which says, um, in Molinism, how can God have middle knowledge without it becoming apple? Wouldn't choosing possible imply potential in the nature of God? So maybe this is talking about the implications of, say, Molinism with classical theism. Well, I would say that um, one needn't um, reject Thomistic metaphysics altogether to be a Molinist. After all, Molina um, thought that he was perfectly consistent with Thomistic metaphysics. Now, someone might argue that he wasn't, but he certainly thought that he was. One of Molina's first works was a commentary on Aquinas's Summa Theologiae. Um, so what um, Molina would say that um, that 
the possibility that's actualized in God is that God has the potential to have middle knowledge and the actuality of that. God actually has middle knowledge. God has the potential to have natural knowledge. God also has um, natural knowledge. So in those two cases, when it comes to pre-volitional knowledge, anything prior to God's will, then it is the case that there's the potential not only for God to have middle knowledge, but the actuality of it as well. So I would actually agree that here potentialities are actualized in God. Now, when the questioner asks, wouldn't not choosing a possible world imply potential in the nature of God? Well, I think that that's a question that really poses any theist who believes that God creates the world or God freely chooses to create the world. Unless one says that God necessarily created this world, that God had no choice, um, which I'm not even sure Aquinas would want to say. I think Aquinas would want to preserve at least some analogy to free will in God. So whatever that analogy looks like, even if we can't quite wrap our minds around it, um, I, I still think you have to say that either divine libertarian freedom or something even greater than divine libertarian freedom, for which our analogy to that is divine libertarian freedom, must exist in God. And therefore, that on, on any view, whether it's Thomism, whether it's Calvinism, whether it's open theism, whatever, you still have God choosing a world. And um, that however Thomism wishes to handle that, I say, that's fine. I don't have a problem with it. Have, um, we have time for probably one more question here uh, from Mark. The question I'm pulling it up right now says, um, I get that knowledge isn't a causal force, but if I have if I have possible choice X and Y, um, and God knows that I will choose X, given God's perfect knowledge, how could I do otherwise? So what do you think of this kind of question, Kirk? Well, it doesn't matter what the quality of the knowledge is. I don't care whether your knowledge is perfect or not. Um, that still doesn't exhibit any logical force on what you do. I mean, imagine for a moment that I had perfect knowledge of my wife. Would that in any way change the situation that I gave before? No, it wouldn't. So perfect knowledge, if knowledge is not causally determinative by its very nature, then whether it's imperfect knowledge or perfect knowledge, it's still causally indeterminative. So um, how could you do otherwise? It almost seems like the questioner is saying, it seems like I'm almost fated to do what God perfectly knows that I will do. But Molinism gives you um, not really backward causation, but what I've called a functional equivalent to backward causation. And by that, I mean, it always lies within my power to do something, which if I had done it, God would have foreknown and middle known differently than God in fact does. So let's suppose later this year, I get an offer from a director of a theological institute to come and speak. And let's suppose that God middle knew and hence foreknew that in April of 2021, Kirk would accept this speaking invitation. Now, at the moment of the point of decision, I still have the free will to turn down that, that request and say, no, I'm not going. And if I were to turn it down, then it's like a, a functional equivalent to backward causation. If I were to turn it down, 
then God's foreknowledge and God's middle knowledge would have been different than it in fact is. And so as long as we have some degree of counterfactual power over the past without the logical absurdity of changing the past, then it makes perfect sense to say you could do otherwise. Oh, I was on mute there for a second. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time, Kirk, and going through these questions. I really appreciate it. Is there anything you kind of like last thoughts you didn't get to, um, things you didn't want to say anything along those lines that you want to say before we wrap things up here? I would say that of all of the possible options, I really think Molinism gives you the most complete view of God. And especially if you are a believer in biblical inerrancy, as I am, then I really think it's the only satisfactory option, um, unless you want to say that, oh, when John 3.16 says that God you know, so loves the world, that, oh, he just means all kind of people in the world, really doesn't mean the physical planet and all the people therein, or you know, God desires all persons to be saved. Well, it really means all kinds of people. Uh, really, you look at it in Greek, no, nope, you don't get that impression either. Um, and you come up with text upon text, whether you choose Calvinism, you get certain texts like those, whether it's Arminianism, you run up against Romans 9, whether it's open theism, you run up against the passages on divine providence. And so I think if Molinism has the explanatory scope and power to account for all the scriptural data, then um, we ought to choose that as the best explanation. Mm. Well, thank you so much again for coming on today, Kirk. We're out of time. Um, so I'd encourage everyone, if you want to follow Kirk and his work, there's a link down below to his website. Lots of great content there. You can check out his books and papers and such. If you're new to here in Apologetics, as always, I encourage you to subscribe to the channel or the podcast, leave a like. And if you enjoy us, you can support us on patreon.com slash here in Apologetics. Right now, we're about 85% funded, so I appreciate everyone's support through that. You can chip in a little a dollar, a little as a dollar a month there. Um, but Kirk, thank you so much one last time for your time. Oh, you're very welcome. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Mark, Susan, uh, everyone else, have a good one. God bless. Thank you.